Good morning. What a great pleasure it is to be back with you uh, after a few years away in West Africa. Um, I've said this to the first service and during Sunday school, New Life in Christ Church has, has been with us all the way. Uh, helped us go to the field, and even before we went to the field, strongly invested in Mission to the World's uh, work in West Africa, supporting the Sindlers, and uh, we are sort of the third iteration of Mission to the World's team in West Africa, standing on the shoulders of giants, literally, Frank Sindler is kind of like a giant, spiritually and physically, and, uh, but just a blessing uh, to be an extension of your church family and ministry in West Africa. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your continued prayers and financial support, which keep us there amidst everything. Uh, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. This will be our text uh, for the morning. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Here now is the reading of God's holy word. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your holy word. Thank you that we can gather together for the privilege of worship, for your very presence among us. We pray now for your help, your spirit's help, as we turn our attention to these verses, and we pray that you would illuminate your word to our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in about a week's time, we will be making a return trip to Virginia, but this time to Lynchburg, Virginia where our son Nicholas is uh, finishing up his first semester at uh, Liberty University. And we have a daughter and her husband who live in Lynchburg as well. Um, But uh, I'm sure that as soon as we get in the car and start to make our trip back to Delaware, uh, invariably the battle of the playlists will begin. What is the battle of the playlists, you ask? Well, the battle of the playlist is the battle between the playlist that's on Nicholas's device and the playlist that is on our device for this six-hour or so so drive back to Delaware. And the the two playlists do not agree. Uh, They don't match up. And, um, you know, the whole idea of a playlist is so interesting and so modern, actually. If you grew up like me in the 70s and 80s, for you to have a playlist meant that you had taken a cassette tape. Some of you don't even know what that is. (laughs) A playlist is a list of songs that you can play, your favorite songs organized by category or type or whatever. 
But to have a playlist in the 70s or 80s, you had to put a cassette tape in a, in a double cassette player and play the song from one side so it could be recorded on the other side. Or better yet, you had to sit in front of your radio, wait for your song to play and record it from the radio on your cassette. And you had to build a playlist and it took time and it was a real commitment. I remember the first time I was in a car with a friend and um, I noticed that all of his favorite songs were playing and he didn't have a cassette player. And I said, how are you doing this? And this was, at, I mean, he was cutting edge at this point sometime in the early 90s. He had an MP3 player. Nobody had MP3 players. And he had an FM transmitter. So we were listening to the songs from the MP3 player over the, the car's radio, which was like amazing at the time. I wonder this morning what's on your playlist. I don't necessarily mean your, your actual physical playlist, though it might say a lot about who we are. Maybe the songs you listen to on the way here. Our playlist usually is, is matched with what we're going through in life. Maybe you have a seasonal playlist for this approaching Advent season. Maybe you have a playlist like my wife does for cleaning the house. Maybe you have playlists for when you're not feeling real up and you need a playlist to pull you through. We create playlists uh, to move us through the seasons of life and on the journeys of life. One way to think about Psalm 130 this morning that has been helpful for me, maybe it'll be helpful for you, is to think about Psalm 130 as one song on ancient Israel's playlist, a very specific playlist that included 15 songs that they would not, not listen to because they didn't have devices back then. Because most, for most of human history, we've been singing our playlists. And ancient Israel had this, this group, this playlist of 15 songs called the Songs of Ascents that they would sing when they would make their pilgrim journey to Jerusalem for one of the great pilgrim feasts three times a year. And as they made that trip, they would pass through the steep valleys surrounding Jerusalem. And they would ascend out of these deep valleys and make that final 20 mile or so trek up to Mount Zion where they would worship the Lord. These Psalms weren't just for passing the time. These Psalms, in fact, were carefully chosen and placed in this playlist by someone who came along after they were written. And they marked the pilgrim's lifelong journey of faith and prepared their heart to meet God. Now what makes this psalm even more interesting to me is where it begins. It's a psalm of ascents, meaning we're going up to meet God in Jerusalem to worship him there. But it's from the depths of despair. Notice where it begins. Out of the depths I cry to you. And I wonder, and we can't be sure about this, but I wonder if there was some purposeful geographical illusion behind including Psalm 130 in this playlist. Why? Because not everyone ascending to Jerusalem for these pilgrim feasts were ascending with their best life now in the rearview mirror. They weren't just ascending out of physical valleys 
but they were ascending some of them out of hellish, dark valleys of emotional and spiritual pain. And yet they were on their way to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. This psalm makes the pilgrim playlist because it teaches us that the gospel we believe and want to share with the world works in the depths of our life. And I have a double burden this morning. My first burden is for someone who may have come in this morning who can identify already with this idea of being in the depths. You know you're in the depths, but you've ascended and you're here with us this morning. My second burden is for a generation of covenant children that we're raising who are struggling to see how the gospel we believe relates to the pain we see all around us. And I'm fearful that we're losing some of our covenant children because we've not passed along this important truth about the pilgrim's journey through the depths and how the gospel relates to Christian pilgrims. So let's look at this psalm this morning together in four parts. You'll notice with me that it actually divides up thematically into to four two-verse stanzas. And here are the four parts this morning. Number one, verses one and two, a cry from the deep. A cry from the deep. Number two, verses three and four, our assurance in the deep. Three, verses five and six, faithfulness in the deep. And fourthly, verses seven and eight, our double hope in the deep. Let's start at the beginning then, verses one and two, a cry from the deep. Look at those verses again. <clears throat> Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Last summer when we came home, two summers ago technically, when we came home for a medical leave, a short medical leave, a friend of ours uh, kindly loaned us the use of their home on the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, we were able to be there with our grown children, uh, for some of our grown children for a week. It was wonderful. But as we went there, uh, our friend told us, gave us two sort of rules or important points. He said, number one, there's a long dock that extends out into the bay. <clears throat> Don't let your children jump off that dock because it's very shallow. Even all the way out to the end, it's only two to three feet deep at high tide. So don't let anyone jump off the dock. Number two, you can swim in the water here and, and wade out in the water, but you need to know that about 150 yards out from the shore, the bottom drops off suddenly and it becomes very deep there. And so you need to know that because you could literally slip off the edge there. So immediately our children run and jump off the dock and wander out to see where this deep water begins. And they're feeling around with their feet. It's cloudy water, so you couldn't see the bottom. And they could feel, even before their feet went over the edge, they could feel the depth coming because of the cold water that was down there. And of course, then they found the edge and they enjoyed running in two feet of water and jumping into the, the depths that were out there and beyond. 
And wouldn't it be great if we had somebody, a friend, who could mark out for us where the shallow waters of life end and the depths begin for us? We don't have that person, but we do have somebody better. You see, the bottom drops out of our life suddenly, without warning. One minute we're frolicking in the shallow waters of life, and the next minute we're over our head, we're in the depths, we're, we're struggling to, to find a footing at the bottom. It's cold, it's dark, it's confusing. And for ancient Israelites, this whole idea of depths conjured up feelings of chaos a scary place where sea monsters like the Leviathan lived, a flashback even to Genesis 1, a formless and void water-filled world before the days of creation commenced. It was sort of a, a decreation, so to speak, for ancient Israelites, a, a reminder that the world we live in is a world broken by the fall, filled with tragic surprises, and many sorrows. And the world we live in is a world like that. And it is a world like that because of what we learn in Genesis 1 and 2. God created this world, created it perfectly. He planted man and his wife in the garden, gave them the command to fill and subdue the world in creation. Man rebelled against God, sinning, eating from the tree that he shouldn't eat, and was cast out of the garden. And from that point forward, the depths have been there for us all. Notably, the depth of sin and the depths of death, even eternal death. The psalmist doesn't identify his deep water. Wish he did on one hand, but glad he doesn't on another. Because, because he doesn't, we can make an easier application perhaps to all of our depths here. He doesn't tell us, for example, if this was a rough season of marriage. He doesn't tell us if he had lost a child in the past year. He doesn't tell us if he had a recent diagnosis that was terminal. He doesn't tell us if he lost his job. He doesn't tell us if enemies, neighboring enemies, invaded the land and destroyed he and his family and carried them off to exile. He doesn't tell if there, if, if there was a global pandemic. He doesn't tell us any of those things. And he doesn't tell us whether or not the depths that he's experiencing are the result of sinful choices he made, which it very well may be. We don't know. Friends, what scary depths have you ascended from this morning? You're here. And some of you have ascended from great, steep, dark, disorienting depths just to get yourself out of bed and be here this morning with us. We've ascended out of some pretty great depths in the last few years in West Africa. We know what that feels like. We know what it's like to be a pilgrim on the journey to worship God at Zion. A few things are striking about these first two verses, and then we'll leave them behind us. The first is that the psalmist, while he's crying out from the depths, he's crying out honestly. He says... In verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. He, he doesn't hide the fact that the bottom has fallen out of his life. This is a very authentic kind of faith. This is a real faith. You do not have to sort of uh, dignify yourself and you don't have to polish your cries for mercy. No, 
you can come as God's people with undignified, unpolished cries for mercy. Don't pretend everything's okay when it's not. That's not authentic faith. We also notice that it's a very personal cry from the deep, and that should be noted. This isn't a general cry to a general God or the idea of God. In fact, if you note in this psalm, very interestingly, in each of the four stanzas, every two verses, the psalmist repeats the name of Israel's covenant God twice, eight times in total. And that's, of course, the covenant God, Yahweh, a name that they hardly would say, so holy, so reverent. But notice this is a personal God. This name, in fact, evoked a sense of God's faithfulness to Israel for generations and how he had rescued them, redeemed them from 430 years of slavery in Egypt and how he had literally parted the, the depths of the sea in rescuing them and brought them to Canaan. This name invoked the sense of the unbreakable covenant that God had made with his people and the promise to be Emmanuel with them. And finally, notice it's a confident cry. It's even a brazen cry. It's almost like the psalmist is saying, hey, Lord, please sit up and listen carefully to my cries for mercy. Let your ear be attentive to my cries for mercy. Now, the question we ask when we get to the end of those first two verses, a very honest cry from the deep, a personal cry from the deep, a confident cry from the deep, is this. What assurance do we have that the Lord will hear us? Or better yet, what assurance do we have that after these depths or in these depths, the Lord is still a safe place for us to return? How do we know the Lord is safe after what has happened, after what has touched our lives, after the depths of despair that we are experiencing? How do we know that the Lord is a safe place? We've been there before. We've asked those questions at times. And the psalmist answers that as he catechizes his children who are in train with him coming up through those valleys to, to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. In verses 3 and 4, our second stanza where he says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, remember that word, Mark in verse 3. And if you're a person who marks words in your Bible, mark the word Mark in verse 3. Because the psalmist uses it in a sort of play on words that's not immediately recognizable. I'll explain it in a minute. If you should mark iniquities, what does it mean to mark an iniquity? Well, the first thought that comes to my mind is of a, a, a gymnast performing a routine to a panel of judges who are attentively watching the gymnast and marking down every time he or she bends his legs and isn't supposed to, bends his or her arms and isn't supposed to, flexes the feet, arches the back in an improper manner and all the other things, marking all those things down so that they can be tabulated into a final grade or a final score for the routine. And it used to be easy. It was just a 10.0. Now it's so complicated. You need to know 
that if you are in Christ this morning, the Lord is not judging your Christian routine as you flounder around in the cold, dark, disorienting depths that you find yourself in this morning. He's not marking you. He's not grading you. And that's really good news because when we're in the depths, we're at our worst. When we're in the depths, we say things we shouldn't say. We, we're tempted to believe things we shouldn't believe. We do things we shouldn't do. We treat people, even those we love, in ways we shouldn't treat them. Because why? The bottom has fallen out of our life. But even at your worst, the Lord does not count your iniquities against you if you're in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't notice your iniquities. That's a stretch too far. He does notice your iniquities, and that's good news. You want him to notice your iniquities. You do not want him to turn a blind eye to your sins because you need him the most when you're caught in sin. You need him the most when you're saying and doing and acting in ways you shouldn't act. You need him the most if this is part of a pattern in your life that you've struggled to break. So you want his attentive gaze. You just don't want it. And Pastor Doug said it already earlier in the service. You don't want it in a judgmental way. You don't want it in a condemning way. And there's a world of difference in a loving gaze of a heavenly father towards his children who are caught in the depths and the holy supreme judge who's ready to unleash heaven's fury upon sinners. There's a very big difference. The Lord is not tallying up. He's not counting your mistakes because he has become the friend of sinners. He's become the friend of sinners. Now, who could stand before God in their hour of need if he marked our sins for even one day, let alone a lifetime? And the answer is no one. For all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Unless God forgives sin. Listen to me this morning, beloved. Unless God forgives sin, we are alone and condemned in our deepest hour of need. But God does forgive sin. Now the question I have when I'm reading a passage like this, this is just where my mind goes, is how did Old Testament people know that? How did Old Testament people have this kind of assurance that the Lord does not count iniquities against his people? And I don't know that I know exactly what was going on in the mind of this particular psalmist on this particular day. But I know where my mind as an Old Testament person I think would be. My mind would go all the way back to Genesis 3. Where man sins and rebels against God. Treason. Cosmic treason. Is cast out of the garden. But nonetheless man is clothed. As God somehow kills an animal provides clothing himself for sinful man to cover his shame. 
And then I would follow that thread of God clothing man in their shame all the way through the Torah, culminating in the Mosaic Covenant, where we see a system, a sacrificial system codified that's already sort of been leading up and and they're already present ahead of this. Because we see people sacrificing animals, building altars, But then at the law of Moses, God prescribes animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And don't forget that as these pilgrims make their way up to Jerusalem through these steep valleys and in the depths of their lives and all of that, and their children are in tow behind them, that they also have their sacrifice with them. And they're on the way to Jerusalem with their sacrifice that they will hand over to the priest who will slay it and place it on the altar for the forgiveness of their sins. Now we know that there is no forgiveness of sins in the shedding of animal blood. But all of this, friends, was a foreshadowing of a truth that you and I know with great clarity on this side of the cross. And this is the gospel hinge of our passage, right? As New Testament believers. God doesn't mark our iniquities because he already marked them in his son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. God does not mark your iniquities this morning because he's already marked them in his son. And on Good Friday, Jesus stepped out of the shallow waters and into the depths of divine forsakenness and eternal condemnation for you and for me. He took our sins on himself. They were marked there. Every sin, past, present, and future, that I've ever committed and that you as the people of God have ever committed was tallied up was marked every flex of your spiritual foot, every flex of your spiritual leg and bent arms marked on Jesus the Son. And he died. He paid the penalty for your sins there. Nothing in this passage works if this pivotal truth is not true. And we have no confidence at all that God cares about us in our suffering unless this is true. And we have no confidence that he hears us and hears our cries for mercy unless this gospel truth is true. And it is true. It is true. And we need to continually be nourished in its truth. Now, verse 4 is surprising, I think, in light of this. It says, but with you... There is forgiveness that you may be feared. Because if I was writing this after everything I just told you, I would write this verse actually a little bit differently. I would write it like this. But with you there is forgiveness that you may not be feared. Isn't that the idea? Not exactly. Not exactly. This is the awe-inspiring reverence of God. God is to be feared for his all-inspiring holiness on that side of the cross and on that side of the cross. He's a holy God, but he's a forgiving God. And Spurgeon put it like this, none fear the Lord like those who have experienced his forgiving love. 
Gratitude, listen to this, gratitude for pardon produces far more reverence for God than all the dread which is inspired by punishment. You see, there's a thin line between this sort of fear of condemnation and reverential fear. And and what divides the thin line or what rests on the thin line is the truth that that there's been someone greater and more qualified that's come along and satisfied the judgment we deserve. And that produces reverence and worship. And that's why you've come this morning, hopefully. You've ascended to the church this morning, the, the spiritual holy temple, heaven's temple, which you and I are part of. You've ascended into worship this morning to celebrate and to worship God for his forgiving love because he is holy. And he satisfied sin's demands in the person and work of his own son, Jesus Christ. Let me put it this way. How do we know that the Lord has not abandoned us in our depths? Let me make it more personal. How do we know that the Lord hasn't abandoned you? in the suffering that you are facing, maybe this morning, because it pleased him to enter historically into our world in the person of Jesus Christ and suffer and die for sinners. There may still be a curse over this world because of sin, but if you're in Christ, there's no curse over you. You've been set free from the curse of sin and death because he was forsaken. So now the question is, now what? We're in the depths. We know that God forgives sin, so he's not abandoned us in the depths and we can make our cries for mercy. What does faithfulness then look like? And the psalmist in the next, in the third stanza, gives us a very just brief, small glimpse of what faithfulness looks like. What does he say? Well, look at verses five and six. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. The psalmist loves these repeated, vivid word pictures. In fact, in Psalm 131, in the very next psalm, we have a similar repetition in verse 2. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. These are repeated so that we will pause... And we will reflect on this image. This this word picture is supposed to communicate something about what faithfulness in the deep looks like to us. And as I mentioned earlier, from verse 3, referencing the word mark, here's the play on words. The word mark in verse 3 is the word watch. Remember the gymnastics judge is watching the routine? And the root here is the same root word for watchmen. And so the idea is that because the Lord, Yahweh, is not a watchman of our iniquities as a judge, we are transformed into watchmen for the morning. Because he is not a watchman of our iniquities, we can be watchmen for the morning. That's the idea. Now these verses teach us what we are to do. No, better than that, that, they teach us who we are to be in the depths. And who are we to be? We are to be watchmen. But what is a watchman? Well, in the ancient world, 
Ancient cities had watchmen. Many cities today, by the way, still have watchmen. And these watchmen would be placed on the wall or in a tower, and their job was to watch that enemies didn't come at night and attack the city, and plunder the city, and carry off its people and possessions. Their job really was to just stay awake and not fall asleep so that if somebody was coming, they could alert the people of the city and give them a fighting chance to protect their city. And by the way, we were surprised when we got to West Africa to find out how important it was that we had a watchman. We, we had to go find and hire a watchman who would watch our compound at night, stay awake till the morning so that thieves and robbers didn't come in at night and steal all of our possessions or worse. And not sure what the Lord had in mind behind this, but that actually happened. We had a watchman. He was supposed to stay awake. He fell asleep, probably so that I would understand this psalm better. That's probably why this happened. He fell asleep. We were invaded by probably a group of men, came into our house completely locked up, took all of our electronic stuff in our bedroom right next to our bed while we were sleeping. We woke up. It's all gone. It was crazy and chaotic. The bottom dropped out of our life that day. Talk about shallow waters, the deep waters. We were in them and, 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 and awake to, a, to a, a surprise like none other. And then we decided human guards aren't as good as canine guards. So we let go our human guard and we got into the protection dog business and now we train Malinois and they protect the house and we haven't had a problem because Malinois can stay awake and sniff out anything that's coming. The point being here is that essentially, and I hope I don't offend anybody who works as a night watchman here, you don't have to do a whole lot. Your, your main job is to stay awake to watch the hours of the night, to watch the sun come up. But the tendency, if you're like me, when the depths come, when the bottom drops out, the tendency right away is to think, what can I do? There's got to be something I should do, I can do, to remedy this situation. There's got to be some book somebody's written, some three-step program out there, Sometimes we'll even visit the pastors and ask them, you know, what do we need to do to get out of this? But honestly, there's often thing, times that there's nothing we can do to get out of the depths that we've fallen into. And so here's the thing. The watchman can't do anything to speed up the rotation of the earth so morning will come sooner. It's out of his hands. But it's 100% certain it's coming. And so while he can do nothing and he's powerless to expedite the morning, he is 100% promised that the sun will rise in the morning. And believer, this is going to sound counterintuitive to everything the world will tell you and maybe what many good Christian books will tell you. But what God wants us to do in the depths is to stop trying to hurry out of them and to trust him. Let me say that again. What God wants us to do in the depths is to stop trying to hurry out of them and to trust him. We want to come down from the watchtower, down from the walls, and we want to do something. But 
this psalm is teaching us through this very vivid word picture that what God wants us to be is watchmen for the morning. Watchmen can't speed up the rotation of the earth and there's nothing you can do to, to, to speed yourself out of this sovereignly ordained depths that you find yourself in. But there's also nothing you can do to keep the morning from coming, which is a wonderful truth. The patient waiting and watching is not complete inactivity. It's the kind of watching and we wait and waiting we see Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane before his hour, where he invited his disciples, in fact, into that hour to watch and to wait and to pray and to seek the Father's face. This is Bible-saturated watching and waiting because the psalmist says, in his word I hope. So we ground ourselves in God's word We ground ourselves in pilgrim-type prayer, and we wait for the morning. Finally, verses 7 and 8, kind of summing up things, our double hope in the deep. Notice there's three reasons for hope as we close here. First of all, the psalmist says, for with the Lord there's steadfast love. Reason number one to hope this morning, wherever you are, is because of the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the covenant love of the Lord. It's Yahweh's hesed, his covenant steadfast love, his unbreakable, unfailing love for you this morning, his love that bottles up your tears, knows your tear droplets by number. Not one of them escapes his attention. This is the steadfast love of the Lord, and you can hope in it. Number two, and with him, verse 7 says, is plentiful redemption. I love that word plentiful. I love it at buffets. I love it at barbecues. And I love it when I go fishing. Plentiful redemption. Plentiful in the sense that God's love and redemption goes as deep as the depths of your worst sins. Deep as the depths of eternal condemnation. His redemption goes deep, but it also goes wide. It's as wide as the globe. It's in West Africa, even in a country that's 96% Muslim. I'm here to tell you this morning that the redemption of the Lord, Yahweh's redemption, is covering the face of this earth and bringing people into the saving covenant love of God. And thirdly, He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And there's a double horizon here. There was a single horizon probably for the psalmist. What do I mean by single horizon? Well, the psalmist was looking forward to something that seems yet still in the future. He will redeem Israel. How will he do that? He was doing it provisionally through the old covenant, but how will he ultimately do it? And there were bits and pieces of how he would do it embedded in the prophecies like the one we heard this morning for the Advent. Jesus would have to come. God would have to send his one and only son into this world and the government would rest upon his shoulders and he would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace. He would be the one that would come fully God and fully man 
and make a way for broken, guilty sinners to be reconciled with God. That was the horizon that was in the distance for these weary pilgrims as they ascended to Jerusalem. And it was foreshadowed and embedded in all aspects of the law. But for us, that's behind us now. We have another horizon. And that's the second advent of Jesus. And this meal, by the way, that we're coming to in just a moment is a pilgrim's feast to follow a pilgrim's playlist. And this feast looks back to what Jesus has already done, but it looks forward to his return when he makes all things new and he dries up our tears and he makes everything broken perfect in this world again. And he makes us sinless covenant people glorified in his presence this meal is looking back and it's looking forward for you and I this morning. And so we come here because we not only need good pilgrims playlist songs, but we need pilgrim meals, nourishment along the way, especially in the depths. And so we come and, and what's great is you don't typically invite your enemies to join you at the table. You invite your friends. You and I are invited to this table because having been enemies, we've become friends and sons and daughters of the king of the universe. And he is pleased to meet us here and feast, allow us to feast upon him the bread of life as we go through even the most difficult, darkest, disorienting depths. Press on in faith, beloved. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word and thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we can come to the table now and be nourished by this means of grace. Pilgrims who are hungry this morning to know the beauty of the gospel, be nourished by it more and more. Be with those especially who have come in out of deep depths. Be God to them. We ask in Jesus' name.